Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi there and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. And, and today I wanted to talk uh, a little bit about the post-war nationalisations that occurred uh, after 1945 uh, under Britain's uh, Labour government, uh, the most successful Labour administration of the 20th century in terms of actually fulfilling its uh, legislative uh, agenda. Um, at the moment, uh, for those of you who aren't uh, in Great Britain, we are currently facing uh, a, a general election uh, with a set of electoral decisions pretty much like, unlike any other we've, we've faced uh, in terms of either a radical social democratic direction under Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party uh, or a, a hard right uh, Brexit uh, under Boris Johnson's Conservatives, um, in the interests largely of um, hedge funds and Russian oligarchs. Um, and key to the discussions that are happening at the moment are the nationalisation of the um, rail network that was privatised during uh, the 1990s, um, the uh, utilities, water, gas, uh, and uh, electricity, and also the nationalisation of part of, of the broadband uh, network, um, uh, which was uh, part of British Telecoms, which was originally part of the uh, the British uh, Postal Service, the Royal Mail, um, the Post Office uh, originally uh, was the uh, originator of our telecoms uh, network, and that was privatised during the 1980s, uh, under one of the uh, great privatisations of, of Margaret Thatcher. For those that aren't familiar with this terminology, privatisation is a relatively new term. Uh, in 1979, when Mrs Thatcher uh, campaigned um, for in the 1979 election, the term privatisation didn't appear in the Conservative Manifesto. In fact, there was uh, the term denationalisation. And she uh, proposed a, a relatively limited amount of denationalisation 
um, which was considered to be a relatively moderate set of proposals and privatisation as a concept uh, was really embraced from the, the mid-1980s onwards. Nationalisation, um, the ideas behind nationalisation uh, originate in Clause 4 of the Labour Party Constitution written in 1918. This uh, clause was written by none other than Fabian Socialist Sidney Webb uh, and it had a commitment to uh, public ownership or socialised ownership uh, of the, the means of production. It reads To secure for the workers by hand or by brain the full fruits of their industry and the most equitable distribution thereof that may be possible on the basis of common ownership of the means of production, distribution and exchange, and the best obtainable system of popular administration and control of each industry or service. Common ownership of the means of production, uh, as uh, understood uh, by Marx, was something far more decentralised, democratic uh, and um, less state-led than the, uh, the way in which uh, Britain's nationalisations manifested, uh, manifested themselves. So today what we're going to do is we're going to read from The Rise and Fall of the British Nation by David Edgerton. Um, and he speaks uh, about a transition that occurred in the first half of the 20th century uh, from uh, globalisation to nationalisation when it comes to Britain's power and food uh, supplies. And what he means is that Britain had, before the First World War, a, a globalised uh, food infrastructure. Um, it was a, a mass food importer and has remained a mass food importer throughout the, uh, the 20th century. But it was also, before the advent of oil, the biggest energy exporter in the world in terms of coal. And in t the um, transition from uh, Britain being uh, a bastion of free trade to, during the 1930s, becoming a protectionist uh, country, uh, and then, after the uh, Second World War, having to negotiate a much more diminished world uh, economic position um, and having to secure... Um, food supplies uh, and energy supplies whilst having a much more unfavourable balance of payment situation uh, meant that uh, nationalisation and the uh, a much more interventionist state uh, had um, uh, there was a much greater likelihood of these things occurring and as indeed they did. David Edgerton writes After the war energy and food were in different senses of the term and to different degrees nationalised. They were either taken into public ownership, relocated to national territory, or more controlled by the state for national purposes. The first and best known sense was that of taking into public ownership, sometimes known as socialisation. There had been some municipal gas and electricity undertakings before 1914. Some would grow to be quite extensive. Furthermore, the government had taken a controlling shareholding 
of the Anglo-Persian Oil Company in 1914 and kept it. Coal mining royalties were nationalised by the Conservative-dominated national government in 1938 in a costly exercise. Owners were compensated with £76.45 million in coal commission stock. The great wave of nationalisations of 1945-51 had the nationalisation of coal mining at its core. This had been the aim of the miners and the Labour Party since the Great War. The mines were bought by the state in 1946 with the creation of the National Coal Board, costing £310 million, paid in government stock. The state did not underpay. The vesting day of the 1st of January 1947, then a working day, saw the creation of the largest civil employer in the capitalist world. Apart from domestic heating and general industry use, all the main users of coal were nationalised by the Labour government. They were railways, gas, electricity utilities and the steel industry. Much of the gas and electricity supply industry was private, along with the railways and steel mills. Thus by 1950, the main elements of what was in effect the coal economy were now in the public sector and accounted for by the great bulk of the industries nationalised. So, for example, manufacturing industries and exporting industries, basically with excluding steel, weren't considered for nationalisation, which was um, nas British nationalisations after the war, were directed towards uh, utilities, um, uh, the, uh, as it's mentioned, gas, uh, electricity, uh, coal uh, and water and also Britain's transport infrastructure, Britain's railways. The Communist Party of Great Britain had an interesting view on the uh, value of coal, considering that they rejected the capitalist system as well. They said that if the country could get back to its position of exporting 30 to 40 million tonnes of coal a year, something that was highly unlikely to happen in 1945, uh, we could be independent of the American millionaires and blackmailers. So the Communist Party of Great Britain was less interested in um, disassembling the global capitalist system as it was of, of uh, rejecting uh, American hegemony in the growing Cold War and having the economic and energy um, muscle in order to be able to do that. Um, the, the Conservatives at the other end of the political spectrum also understood that the coal trade was indispensable to British power. But they were also aware that the uh, coal uh, mine owners had been bailed out throughout the 20s and 30s. And when government subsidies had been cut in 1925, that had led to pit closures which had indirectly or led in part to the general strike of 1926. So um, the uh, entire industry um, had been based on, on very shaky premises since the end of the Great War. Post-war coal exports um, were uh, half what were required, down to uh, 20 million. Though 
uh, up until the mid 1950s, this was a still a, uh, a coal-powered country, uh, reliant on steam trains, uh, with uh, cities that were uh, clogged with uh, smog, uh, the great smog of the uh, early 1950s in London, uh, being a classic example. Uh, so this was so um, Britain. Uh, of the, the 1940s and 50s uh, was a country quite literally physically darkened and greyed by coal smoke and ash. So the industry that had been nationalised by uh, the Labour government um, was one which, had n which never again reclaimed its former glory as a uh, national champion. Um, coal output was never any higher than the worst uh, non-strike years of the interwar period. The expansion of uh, coal production was only able to happen in the short term because of an expanding workforce. It was not based on efficiency, it was not based on uh, growing markets for British coal. Nationalisation tended to suit the miners, however. They were generally uh, pleased to be um, taken from the control of the pit owners. Um, the pit owners were um, hated by the miners. Um, the miners feared accidents in the pits due to cost-cutting measures uh, and they uh, had bitter memories of the lockouts and strikes of the 20s and 30s. The Communist um, Party uh, trade unionists, uh, particularly in the South Wales Valleys and the uh, leadership of the new National Union of Mine Workers, um, were very keen to uh, use whatever measures possible to protect miners' jobs. They rejected the idea of um, foreign labour, Irish, Polish, um, or uh, any other uh, continental labour. And they also rejected, to, at the end of the war, um, the possibility of using prisoners of war, which had been uh, mooted uh, by the wartime government. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And there was also a kind of a degree of naivety uh, around this kind of struggling, uh, faltering uh, industry uh, that was rapidly being superseded by uh, other forms of energy, particularly oil. Arthur Horner, General Secretary of the National Union of Mine Workers, said um, there must be so improved uh, in mines as to attract the voluntary labour of British boys in British mines, um, that the that mine work must uh, be a kind of like a, a magnet for labour. So. Here we have this um, industry that's taken into public control, um, partly due to the influence uh, that the miners' unions had over the Labour Party, and partly due to uh, long-standing uh, uh, industrial and uh, ideological visions within the Labour Party that uh, nationally controlled uh, coal would not only provide uh, good jobs, but the basis, the kind of the, the energy basis for the British economy of the 1950s and, and 60s. Um, but the, uh, as we know, the the mines when they were taken into public ownership were uh, producing coal, which had uh, an increasingly smaller share of the uh, the world market for coal, and the world market for coal, of course, after 1945 is diminishing. The government had hoped to um, uh, use Poles, Polish labour, uh, and European volunteer workers uh, in the mines, uh, but this was resi resisted strongly by the, uh, the unions, um, and only about 8,500 foreign workers went into the mines in 1948. Um, the government had a target of 30,000 mine workers, far in excess of anything that was actually possible. Um, and this was um, a, a basically a, a goal that was eventually abandoned, uh, as it was seen to be wildly unrealistic. There were 10,000 foreign miners by 1951, and later there were attempts to recruit Italians. And after 1957, Hungarians, who those obviously who had fled the uh, 1956 um, Hungar uh, Hungarian uprising. Um, and so what you see here is an industry that because of union power, because of nationalisation, um, particularly in terms of its labour force, strictly a national industry, um, that the um, free flow of labour and the internationalisation of labour markets was not a possibility after 1945, if it ever had been. So interestingly enough, we have nationalisation after 1945, but there's a curious kind of industrial nationalism there uh, as well. Uh, one that you see popping up with the Labour Party throughout the post-war era. Um, later on in the 1970s, um, Tony Benn in the uh, Wilson and then Callaghan governments is very keen on the idea of national champions and uh, national uh, symbolism um, 
the development of things like Concorde, for example, uh, and the uh, hope to create various kind of car manufacturing conglomerates that would not only be um, somehow kind of part of his, his broadly socialist ideas about the economy, but also uh, kind of national champions to uh, flag wave for the, the British brand around the world. David Edgerton writes, in the cases of oil and food, nationalisation in the sense of national production was something which was now a key policy aim. In a reversal of previous practice, large oil refineries were to be built at home rather than in the oil fields. This was an expensive commitment. By 1950, 2.2% of all investment in the UK was in petroleum. This went up uh, this went largely into refineries in Shell Haven, Stanlow, Grangemouth, Forley, Corriton, and the Isle of Grain, and all be completed in the early 1950s. Another huge project started in the 1940s was the Imperial Chemical Industries Wilton Works, which would produce chemicals and new fibres from petroleum on the other side of the Tees from ICI's coal-based Billingham works created from the end of the Great War to make fertiliser. So this is an interesting part of the story of the post-war Labour government and one that perhaps gets slightly ignored in that what Labour was doing during the 1940s or the second half of the 1940s was building up the energy infrastructure of Great Britain. It was building um, oil refineries, it was building petrochemical works with ICI um, and it was creating um, a more national-based energy infrastructure, partly about um, returning jobs from overseas, from where the oil fields were, um, to Great Britain. Uh, and partly this was based in semi-kind of wartime thinking uh, about giving the country um, its own sort of science, engineering, technical and industrial capacity to um, uh, be able to compete, not militarily now, obviously, though admittedly we are in the phase of the Cold War, um, but, but, but economically. And it was not seen uh, in any way as kind of uh, intrusive by the state for uh, government to be heavily involved in this and for... Um, the British government to take a key uh, organising role uh, in this sort of project. Of course, in the 1940s, this is in the era before the discovery of North Sea oil. So, of course, all Britain's oil does come from overseas uh, and um, comes from places that have uh, been key sites of British imperial activity, such as um, Iraq or Burma or the Dutch East Indies. Uh, or uh, various other sites. Um, so in the 1940s, the issue of food also is a, a key um, determinant of uh, the, the kind of the scope and the direction of nationalisation too. Reducing imports was a key goal of the Labour government because it helped with Britain's very difficult balance of payments uh, situation. The reason for the continuation of rationing after the Second World War was to preserve sterling, was to present 
uh, a poor balance of payment situation, so you didn't have huge outflows of currency leaving Britain and thus depressing the value of the pound. Uh, and so um, rationing uh, and a, a increased um, desire to promote a British self-sufficiency uh, was um, very, very important and seemed very, very important at the time. This didn't see agriculture taken into state hands. It remained private. Um, and there were 250,000 POWs who worked on the land after the war. Uh, many Germans and Italians uh, helped to make the United Kingdom, um, uh, in, in agricultural terms, rather like their, their own countries. Many of them would have been farmers uh, and um, agricultural workers uh, drafted into military service. The Agriculture Act of 1947 uh, had, uh, as its aim, uh, a permanent increase in self-sufficiency. Uh, this would take decades to achieve, but the path was mapped out in 1947. Agriculture was taking around 5% of total investment in the years up to 1951. However, this was about the same kind of investment as went into the entirety of Britain's railways, and more investment than went into Britain's coal mines. So between 1937 and 1951, the proportion of the economy that was represented by agriculture and the proportion of employment in that sector increased, with the proportion of output uh, remaining roughly the same from 1951 all the way to the 1970s. And throughout the post-war era, up until the kind of the, the loss of the final colonies in the 60s and the 70s, state-led food production schemes were uh, rife uh, across the empire. Um, there were uh, significant uh, levels of exploitation in the colonial empire, places as uh, uh, plans such as the kind of the infamous groundnut scheme in Kenya and Tanzania um, that uh, was meant to deliver uh, large quantities of, uh, of peanuts and uh, other nuts uh, on the um, uh, on the, the kind of the global commodities market, which would be used to make uh, margarine from. These sorts of colonial projects normally benefited Britain at the expense of the countries which were being uh, colonised uh, in order to provide agricultural commodities uh, for um, British markets. So it's important to look at the nationalisation of uh, fuel, uh, food um, and energy uh, provision. Um, and the other kind of aspects of infrastructure and utilities that we've seen um, in the context of Labour's priorities and Labour's sort of strategic vision in 1945 and also its kind of ideological vision. Uh, and to look at the current nationalisations being uh, proposed uh, and to see them in a similar context, a similar context of um, a, a Britain that has been through um, the process of uh, privatisation of the 1980s uh, and, and 1990s um, and uh, even the scantest kind of uh, glance at uh, the statistics has very little to show for it. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, uh, certainly the outcome of the election, and interesting to see uh, what becomes 
of uh, Labour's nationalisation plans and an interesting to compare it with the first wave of nationalisations after the first, after the Second World War. Anyway, I hope you found this useful and interesting and I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. Thanks very much. All the best. Bye-bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.